Dear Father, it is a, a joy, Father, to be gathered around us with um, men and women who share our concerns for you and our desire to know you better. And um, Father, a support structure like this is one that you uh, gave out of the grace and the goodness of your heart to those who follow you because you knew, Father, that we couldn't stand alone in our flesh. Though we've been saved by grace through your pouring out of mercy, Father, we still have a life to live here waiting for the day of our redemption in the body. And so we live in the in the trails, tra- uh, travails and difficulties of, of sinful body. But I thank you, Father, that you've surrounded us with men and women who can support us in that walk. And I pray, Father, we'd always have that in our minds as we consider the opportunity to be here, that these are people you've given to us for that purpose. I thank you, Father, that we can be blessed by that presence of the body. Thank you, Lord, for the disciplines of the faith that come as well, for a church and a home that is founded in your word and committed to it. And, Lord, each Sunday we pray that we would, uh, we would be brought to something new and different, something that would encourage us in a better way. And your word certainly does that, Father. But it also requires of us that we would come with an open heart, a teachable heart, an attitude that isn't concerning ourselves with what others need to do, but is always focused on what we need to do. I pray, Father, that would be our heart right now, that you'd direct us inward giving us reasons to consider who we are in you and what we're doing with the time you've given us. May the word of God, Father, do its work in our hearts in that way. As we pray each week for that outcome, uh, we sincerely desire it, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you all know from last week, we waded into the third warning in the book of Hebrews. This is the three of five that we're going to find as we progress through this book. The first of those warnings came at the beginning of the letter where we looked at those who had watched the truth from a distance. They drifted by it, according to Scripture. So from their point of view, they had been exposed to an extent to the truth of Scripture, but it hadn't made any impression on their heart. The gospel had not come in. So we saw that as a warning to an unbeliever who had glanced by the the opportunity to know the Lord, but had never stopped long enough to consider it. Then the second warning was a warning to those who had come into the church to an extent. They were a part of the gathering, but they were like those in Israel's day in the desert. They had heard the word of God, seen the miracles, been exposed to it in that way. But what they had experienced had not been united in their heart with faith. So here again, we have rings on a bullseye where the center of the bullseye might be that abiding life that a Christian has when they really know the Lord and are living in the counsel of his word. And somewhere on the very fringes, you have that Unbeliever who passed it by a little closer, those who come into the group for a while, but then they eventually fall away. They, they have no sense of who Christ really is because they've never known him truly. They've just known the experience of the church. Now we've reached the third warning, which is a ring closer. Now we're dealing with Christians, as we said last week. But in this case, those who have come into a knowledge of Christ, but are not living in a walk of spiritual maturity. They're not moving forward in that knowledge. The writer was concerned for the church in this third warning because he was concerned for those who were not making spiritual maturity a priority in their walk. They were, as he put it, a little lazy or neglectful in their listening. They weren't moving forward in any greater knowledge of God's word. And therefore, they weren't going into a greater life of obedience and faithfulness. And for this particular group, they didn't seem to understand, according to what was written, that failing to move forward as a Christian means taking the risk of sliding backward. You're either going forward or you're going backward. There really isn't any standing still in terms of how the Christian walk is experienced. And if you don't have a steady diet of God's word in your spiritual life, then you're susceptible to things like missteps of doctrine, deceptions, 
from the enemy or the world, fleshly temptations in your own body. And as you go further and further down a path of those sorts of things, you may be on a one way trip, according to the writer. The moral of the story last week was we don't always get a second chance. The writer warned the church that they may not get a second opportunity to obey what they know and to be blessed by that obedience. God may not grant us the grace for that second chance. That is the second chance to be arrested from a life of disobedience and put on the straight and narrow path of obedience. If we take that opportunity and squander it, if we turn back to our sin, we may end up living out the rest of our days as Christians, yes, but in rebellion and in the consequences that that rebellion naturally produces. We may be like that prodigal son who never gets out of the mud. And God, the writer says, has good reason not to extend us a second chance, if that be his will, because he says we're putting the Lord to open shame each and every time we pursue an ungodly, disobedient lifestyle. We've already received one opportunity to repent just in the very fact that we're brought to faith. If we don't make the most of that opportunity, we play the odds and we bet that God would bring us rescue a second time and he may not do it, the writer says. So we finished with that parable and we ended last week in chapter six, verses seven and eight, where the parable explained the consequence using a picture of a farmer and a field. And as we learned in seven and eight, let me read those again for you. Seven and eight. He wrote for the ground that drinks the rain, which often rains on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. And as we saw last week, there are two ways that a believer can respond to the grace of God, and there are consequences for each of those responses. On the one hand, you can take the grace of God that's extended to you as you come into the faith, and you can turn it into a harvest for the Lord. He invested in us, and we returned that investment with spiritual fruit. And if we do that, he says we receive a blessing. And we know that he's referring to the eternal reward that awaits all those in the kingdom who have served God well. But that's one option. The other option was that a believer can take the grace that God gives, the picture here of rain falling on the ground, and we can turn that back to him in unholy, unpleasing works. We can forego the study of God's word, which is where all of this really starts to go wrong. And in doing so, we allow our spiritual maturity to atrophy, And then by that point, we start to get distracted by the riches and pleasures and worries and cares of this world, to quote Luke chapter 8. And then from there, we begin to retreat into a selfish, self-serving life. We're like a field that doesn't produce anything but worthless crops for the Lord. And so as a result, all that work gets burned up on our judgment day. So the choice is mature, obey, be rewarded. Or shrink back, disobey, suffer loss. It's simple. But I have to wonder if some in the church, as they read the words that we've read, if perhaps some of them were starting to ask themselves, maybe maybe it's too late for me. Maybe I'm one of those people that he will not permit, as the writer suggested. Maybe I'm in the mud and I'm just going to stay there. He's already called them out for not being able to follow the teaching that he was going to present on Melchizedek. He said, by now you ought to be teachers of the word, but you can't even handle this truth, it seems like. And that might lead some of them to think that they're too far gone. Because that's not the case, the writer moves into a period of encouragement to end this chapter. In verses 9 through 12, look what he says. He says he hopes to spur the church into a better place. Verse 9, he says, but beloved, 
We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now you can tell he's turned a corner here. He's left behind the chastisement and he's moved toward encouragement. He begins by saying, we're convinced of better things concerning you. And the we here is probably a reference to all the apostles who were leading the church and teaching in that day. For he's writing to a group of churches and probably on behalf of the group of apostles back in Jerusalem. He says, we are collectively convinced of better things. We believe this church will receive the better things that accompany salvation. And the things that accompany salvation are the things Paul talks about, for example, elsewhere when he mentions spiritual fruit in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about these fruits of the Spirit that accompany salvation for those who live in the Spirit. Chapter 5, 22 and 23, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says against such things there is no law. If you think about that list, and we're not going to take time because that's not the focus of our study this morning, but if you were to go down that list and think about each of those words for a second, you would find that they all sum up to a lifestyle of obedient, selfless living for the sake of the Lord. You are going to be moving in the right direction if those are the characteristics of your life as a Christian. They're going to have to be the result of the Spirit, and they're evidence that we're living in that Spirit. They're the behaviors and the attitudes that accompany salvation in the life of an obedient believer. And you remember last week we said if he's talking about a Christian and he's talking about the prospect of falling away, then he has to be talking about things that a Christian can control. That is, the things that they have mastery over in their life. And we said those would be things like behaviors and thoughts and attitudes. Well, look at the fruit of the Spirit. They're behaviors, thoughts, and attitudes, but they're in one direction. That is, with the Lord, as opposed to the kinds that come as a result of living in the flesh. Paul says these develop in believers who are diligent to strengthen themselves through healthy spiritual disciplines, while at the same time crucifying the flesh, crucifying our desires, so to speak. And the writer of Hebrews says, when that's the kind of life we lead as a believer, then we should have an expectation that there will be eternal reward. Now, you might ask yourself, this seems a bit Pollyannish, actually. If you look at the way the first part of the chapter goes, and you look at where he's going now, you might step back with a bit of a cynical eye and say, He sounds awfully optimistic for a group that he just called out for being immature. What would cause that optimism? Is he trying to placate them, make them feel better at this point? Or does he have real reason to think that there's hope for this church? I think he's convinced that the church will right the ship and move forward in their faith, not on the basis of prophetic knowledge or any such thing. And I don't think he's simply speaking here in optimistic terms. I think he's saying what he's saying because he knew this audience was going to receive and read this letter. The very fact that he knew they were going to hear these words and be convicted by them, for they are scripture, was reason enough to have an optimistic attitude. It always comes back to the word of God. That's where the problem started. And now he's pressing them through the word of God to go on to better things. And his confidence was not in the power of these people to suddenly put themselves back on track. 
It's not on that. It's on the confidence rooted in the power of God's word to change your heart. And because he knew they would hear these words, because he knew that they would have an impact on their life, it would convict them and inspire them. For that reason, he had some hope that they would move on to better things. Just as their lack of attentiveness to the word of God led them to struggle in the first place, by that same token, attentiveness to the word of God is the solution to their problem. Friends, for that very same reason, I think his optimistic tone is equally appropriate for anyone today who would read these words in this letter and study them and take them seriously. Friends, if you're the kind of Christian to give attention to Hebrews chapter 6, then there's a lot of good reason to think that you have an optimistic future ahead of you. The very fact that you're attentive to the meat of God's word, to something as academic and difficult and theologically based and obscure as Hebrews chapter 6, that's a good sign. It's the Christians who aren't studying this that are the concern. It's the ones who have never considered what's in this chapter. It's the ones who are completely confounded by the warnings of Hebrews. It's the ones who come to chapter 6 and think he's talking about unbelievers, for example. It's that mindset that's at most risk of the concerns of this writer. The ones who are backsliding, the ones who are in danger of the consequences, are those who have no idea that Hebrews 6 even exists. But for those who care enough to want to know what it says and are here on a Sunday morning or listening on the Internet or whatever to the concerns of this letter, it's a pretty good bet that that's a person God is already working in the heart with. And that's a person who's already considering their walk in ways that are meaningful and concerned with how they please the Lord. That's a good bet. It's not a guarantee, but it's it's reason to be optimistic. And I think that's the basis of his optimism in this case. Having said all that, let's temper that, though, with. Another truth, we can never grow complacent or sit on our laurels, as the saying goes. The walk of a Christian is a never ending pursuit of pleasing the Lord. If you pleased him today, well, good for you. You should. But that's no guarantee you'll please him tomorrow, is it? Notice the writer says in verse 10, the Lord will not overlook the good works that these believers have accomplished in their walk. In other words, there's no need to worry that something we've done in the faith that we possess for the purpose of pleasing the Lord is going to be forgotten or overlooked. But also notice the writer emphasizes our works must be done in love toward the brethren. It's the work within the body that is our focus, and that work is the process by which we take the gospel to the world and how we grow as a Christian individually. The work within the body is the center of all of that. We fund missionaries through the church. We fund church outreach. We pray for those in the church and we pray for those who are lost. We train others to carry the gospel. We disciple those who come into the faith and so on and so on. The center of the life of a Christian is in the good works done for the sake of the body, which then has as a consequence an outreach to the world. But if he says the Lord will not forget our good works, doesn't he imply something else? Isn't the implication there that he also is going to remember what we passed by? We're talking about the rewards and how God will assess our work for that sake. And if he knows everything we've done well, then it's also the case that he knows everything we haven't done well. Also notice the writer's statement in verse 11. He expects everyone in the church to follow the same example of diligence, that it is not sufficient that some of you do this. It is the expectation that all of you would do this. And friends, remember, the standard that we are seeking to meet is not a standard found in another Christian in this sense. Because if you measure your walk of obedience, if you say to yourself, 
I don't think I'm doing too badly. I mean, think of so-and-so, for example. For crying out loud, I'm a lot better than that person is. If you do that, if you measure your walk of obedience and maturity against some other person in the body, then, friends, by the nature of the problem, we're going to be tempted to make comparisons against people who help us feel good about ourselves. It's just the way the mind and the heart of a sinful person works. You will seek out the person who is in worse shape than you are, and then you will look at them and favorably compare yourself and find yourself feeling very self-satisfied, and you take away any reason at all to have to change anything in your life. Thank goodness there's always that one person we can find to help us feel good about where we are. Because there's always going to be that person. I mean, if you look widely enough, if you look broadly enough, in fact, I'm tempted to think that if you're the person in any given church body who is literally the worst, you're going to find a different church body so that you're no longer in that position. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's conscious. I just think that's how we feel sometimes and we act on our feelings, right? We're going to always be able to find someone who attends church less than we do. We're always going to be able to find someone who studies the Bible less consistently than we do. We can always find someone who prays less, who contributes less, who volunteers less. There's always someone. But our standard isn't found that way. The writer says we are to make sure that everyone in the church is diligent to seek to the same proper standard and to meet that test. Not because we are in some position to judge one another. That's not the heart of this. It would be more like this. What if you had a family of 10 kids? I don't know anybody like that. Do you? Who had nine of them saved and one that didn't know the Lord. Would you feel content with that? Nine out of 10, 90 percent. That's a good bet. No, no, your concern would be for the one that's lost, right? Just like in the parable of the 99 sheep, right? Your concern is for the one who's lost. If we as a church body share the love of Christ among us, then if there was any among us who were not living obediently to the extent he calls us to and is therefore putting their eternal reward at risk, would we not share a concern for them? Again, not to judge them, but to encourage them forward. That's what the writer's asking here. If, on the other hand, we like the fact that there's that one guy in the room that does everything wrong and we, we feel good because it makes us look better, that's antithetical to the purpose of the church. And I realize we don't tell ourselves we think that way, but I wonder sometimes if it's not behind some of our actions. The standard is the word of God itself. So we look to the word of God to set our expectations with sincerity, with honesty. And if you do that, friends, you will always find somewhere in your life you're not yet measuring up. And it begins to give you more direction and guidance and counsel to move forward. It's the classic log in your own eye, splinter in someone else's eye dichotomy. If you're the kind of person who's sincerely concerned for how people live and whether they live in sin, I suggest you start worrying about yourself first. Once you've fixed all your own problems, then you can move on to someone else. If you live like that, I assure you, you'll never reach step two. Notice the writer says that we must make sure that all remain diligent, but then notice at the end, until we realize the full assurance of our hope until the end. So he wants everyone to go together, and he wants us all to work on this until we all realize the full assurance of our hope until the end. Now the hope that he's referring here to is the hope of the Christian faith, which is two parts according to scripture, the hope of our resurrection and the hope of our inheritance. Those two things collectively are the hope of the Christian faith. We hope in the reality of a new body after death. That is the hope of resurrection. And we hope in the promise of an inheritance in the kingdom, which is something that all those who are in Christ receive. Later in this very letter, the writer defines faith in a very well-known verse, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Notice in that verse, which I'll read here now, notice in this verse, these two parts, these two parts to our hope are evident in the definition of faith. 
Verse 6, he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We have to believe that God is and that he's a rewarder. When he says we have to believe that God is, he means we have to believe in the Lord having lived again after resurrection, that he is still alive. In other words, that he didn't die and then end his life as humans do. He died, was resurrected and lives and is. Paul repeats this in Romans, as you know, in Romans chapter 10, he says that to be saved, you have to do what? You have to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. The resurrection is central to our understanding of the faith. So first, believe the Lord is alive, that is resurrected. But do you notice the second half of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? We have to also believe he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Just like the patriarchs of the early days, we believe in the promise of a second life, but one that is lived with the reward that comes in that second life. So the writer says, we want to be diligent to make sure everyone understands what's at stake. Everyone moves forward together, leave no one behind, and be diligent. And when he says the full assurance of our hope, He's talking about the full measure of reward that's available to every believer who serves the Lord. Why lose anything? I mean, I know people in the church who clip coupons, they buy in bulk to save in earthly wealth. Why not think in similar ways concerning your heavenly treasure? Why not live in ways to please the Lord and ensure the greatest possible reward when we reach our judgment day? For friends, if you're living in a way that pursues God's pleasure and receives the greatest reward, then by definition, you're also living in a way that reflects the greatest honor and glory upon him. Those two are the same thing. Please the Lord, honor his name. Serve the Lord, honor his name. Obey the Lord, honor his name. And in the course of doing all that, receive reward as a function of his pleasure. So the writer says, let's not be sluggish. Let's not be lazy. Let's be imitators. And he says specifically, be imitators of past Followers of God, those who inherited the promises by living patiently. He's referring to men like Abraham, who becomes the writer's example now in the next section. Look at verses 13 through 18. This is the example that he wants us to emulate. He says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Do you all remember from our Genesis study, Abraham was that man God granted that miraculous set of promises that we call the Abrahamic covenant. In that covenant, God assured Abraham he would receive a number of great things. Specifically, he would have descendants who would become a great nation. He himself and Abraham himself would have a great name among the nations of the world, and he certainly does. That he would also receive a great inheritance that included this huge parcel of land that he never did receive in his earthly lifetime. And he would also be a blessing to many nations on the earth. Now, when Abraham first heard those words, it said in chapter 15 of Genesis that he believed God. He believed those things would happen. And as a result, it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed and he was made righteous by God. We would say in today's way of saying things, he was saved by his faith back in chapter 15. But Abraham had to have some patience at that point. His faith 
as you know from the stories we studied, was tested many times. He had to wait 25 years before God even brought the first of those descendants into being, the promised son of Isaac. And then, as I just mentioned a minute ago, Abraham died before he received all the land God said would be his. That's why he lived as a wanderer. He he knew it wasn't even going to come during his earthly lifetime. He didn't even pretend he was going to gain it until a future lifetime. And as we sit here today, he still has not received the land that has been promised to him. So we're told Abraham had to live patiently, according to those promises, seeking to please the Lord so he could receive the full measure of the promise. And then the writer proves his point by quoting in verse 14 from Genesis 22. Now think about the math here for a minute. Genesis 15, that's where he received the promise. That's where he was counted righteous by faith. Then you've got to go to chapter 22, seven chapters later, before the events that the writer of Hebrews now is talking about. And it's in this moment in chapter 22, a well-known moment in which Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son at the top of a mountain. And Abraham, we know, complied. And he complied because, we're told, that he was confident that God would resurrect Isaac if necessary. Abraham knew that the death of the human body was not an obstacle to God fulfilling his promise. So there was no need for Abraham to withhold his son because it's not an obstacle. It didn't stop God from being able to do what God said he was going to do. His faith in God's promise trumped even death itself. And so he was willing to comply. Of course, we know God stopped him because God didn't need him to do it. God asked him to obey. After God saw Abraham's obedience, the Lord stopped him, as you know, through the angel of the Lord, and then spoke to him this oath that the writer quotes. An oath that assured Abraham everything that Abraham had been promised earlier would come to pass. And the writer says, oaths are given under very specific circumstances. Men make an oath to one another as that final step of assurance in any human situation in any human dispute if you and i are wrestling over some detail or fact of life or some argument over some agreement if i make an oath to you it puts the matter to rest and the reason is because in the day that these things were done an oath was a promise that said if anything i'm saying is untrue or if anything i've committed to does not come to pass you have legal permission to take my life so an oath by its nature was a promise of your life against the circumstances How much higher standard could you apply in any set of circumstances, in any dispute? There's nowhere more to go after that. And the writer mentions that here and says, when God gave an oath, he couldn't swear about anyone else's name because there is no higher name. He swore in his own name. But he swore an oath to assure Abraham in the highest possible way that Abraham would receive what he had been said to receive. Now, here's the dilemma. We know that God's word by itself is sufficient. In other words, there was no need for the oath. God's word is not only trustworthy when he gives oaths. It was trustworthy in chapter 15. So that begs the question, why did the Lord take the extra step of swearing an oath in chapter 22 for a promise he had already spoken in chapter 15? Well, first, look at chapter 22 for just a moment and just a couple verses, 16 and 17. This is what was actually said by God at that point. He said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. You notice it was Abraham's obedience that led God to grant him this extra degree of assurance. Abraham was already declared righteous by God's word. 
It was in that same faith that he acted here in obedience to do something as incredible as sacrificing his son. So faith came first, then came patience, after patience, then more obedience, after obedience came further assurance of blessing. Secondly, the writer tells us here in verse 17 that the Lord took, in 17 of Hebrews, the Lord took this extra step of swearing an oath, not because his promises were in doubt, but because he wanted to demonstrate a connection between his works and God's pleasure, such that as Abraham completed the assignment, which was unbelievably difficult, and did so because of faith in God's word, then by that obedience, God was willing to go the next step and bless him all the more in his grace and mercy. James teaches us this, the last piece James teaches is in James chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see, faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. When it says Abraham's faith was perfected, it means it was perfected by his willingness to obey the Lord in all things, because that's the purpose of faith. It was perfected in the sense it was fulfilled. It had served its purpose. Friends, the life of a believer has a purpose in God's economy. The life that we're to have in faith is a life of good works done in that faith so that we can please the one who bought us. That's the purpose of your faith. Your faith was not granted to you so that you could get into heaven. That's your blessing. That's not God's purpose. It's not like heaven is not heaven unless you and I are there. Right? It's not like he needed us in heaven or heaven suddenly would have been spoiled. The point is not you. The point is God. The point is his glory, not yours. And so when you're granted faith so that you then enter into a life of work so that you can then serve and please God, it's so that you can bring honor to his name. If you do that, you're perfecting your faith. You're fulfilling it. You're serving its purpose, so to speak. That's another way to say it. If you don't do those things, your faith is imperfect. It's unfulfilled. It's not serving its intended purpose in God's economy. And lastly, the Lord delivers Abraham this oath. The writer says in verse 17, so that he can make clear to the heirs of the promise that when we serve and please the Lord, we will receive an assurance of blessing. We will have strong encouragement to take refuge in the promises of God. If God was willing to swear an oath to Abraham, an oath that he wasn't required to give, that it wasn't even necessary to offer, then that should be greater evidence to us of how seriously God takes our behavior and how strongly he is willing and waiting to reward it. For a man like Abraham, who was already justified by faith, when he took that extra step, God went an extra step as well. When we do as God calls us to do, we can be assured that our hope is not in empty things. We can learn from Abraham in that regard. So, friends, even though we've been saved by our faith, the Bible calls us to move forward as Christians, not leaving our hope behind. And look what he says at the very end of what I read. He said, we are to take hold of the hope that lies before us. Having taken refuge, take hold of the hope. To take refuge in this context means to have come into the faith in the first place, to have been made a child of God by faith. Those of us who have taken refuge in Christ now have an option. Do you take hold of the hope that has been set before you or do you not take hold of that hope? You see, the hope is there. It's not a question of whether you make it show up. It's there. There's a hope set before you. You have a hope of resurrection and you have a hope of eternal reward. You can ignore those hopes. 
You've still taken refuge. You're still saved. But when you don't take hold of the hope, as the writer is expressing it here, you're living in ignorance of the things that have been promised you. When you don't live in an expectation of resurrection, you think this body is the only one you'll ever have. You worry too much about death and you worry too much about preserving your life. And when you don't take hold of the hope of reward, then you worry too much about investing in this world and making your life about the material value of this world. And you don't give enough attention to investing in the next. That's the mindset that he's asking us to adopt, a mindset that doesn't leave behind our hope of both the resurrection and eternal reward. It's a danger for any of us. If we forget that it's important to persevere into holiness, if we expect that all we have now is all we will ever have, we will live in such a way that eventually we will be like this one the writer speaks of, who falls away, gets away from the disciplines of the faith, and has an attitude that seeks only to please ourselves. Or we can take hold of the hope that's set before us, remain rooted in the word of God, understand that the trials of life will continue and our need to progress must go with it. If we do that, if we live with eyes for eternity, we please him and reach a full assurance the full measure of the hope that has been set, of the reward that is ours to have. And as I'll end with one last thought as we go to communion, I have encountered some on occasion who, hearing this and even seeing it in Scripture for themselves, recoil a little at the notion, as they understand it, as they hear it, that we're motivating Christians to do the right thing for materialistic purposes, a kind of eternal materialism, some have called it. It somehow cheapens the experience for some Christians. It makes us feel a little less holy and pious, a little less selfless. There's something untoward about saying to ourselves, we're seeking God's pleasure so that we can seek reward. They've made it sound wrong in their hearts, or at least it comes off that way. If that's you, give some thought to that and ask yourself where it comes from. There is no other aspect of human life in which we assume or in which we associate seeking reward with negative outcomes. We ask people to seek reward at work. We ask our children to seek reward as they work to please us in our homes. We ask people in every walk of life imaginable to seek for reward, knowing it motivates good behavior. And we see that as a blessing and as a virtue in every situation. And then suddenly, when the Lord lays it out for us in the pages of Scripture and says, please me and I will reward you. We somehow turn that into a negative and we question whether it can possibly be a motivation and whether, in fact, it makes us feel a little dirty. And shouldn't we just do it because we love him? But I have found in my own experience, to answer that objection, I have found in my experience that the Christian who is otherwise disinterested in reward and thinks that serving God should be merely a matter of love and and gratitude in the heart are often the Christians who are doing the least in that regard. They'll say it, but they're not actually motivated by it. But the ones who understand the scriptures teaching on reward and have concerned themselves with their judgment day, in my experience, are Christians who are very focused on eternity, and it shows in their life. Through service, through witness, through sacrifice, through dedication, through consistency. In other words, all the good traits that we all aspire to show in our walk come out when your heart is concerned with how your Lord is going to judge you. And likewise, when we think it's only a matter of just doing it because we love him, somehow that that gets lost in the shuffle of day-to-day life. So, Take the wisdom of God at face value and concern yourself with your reward, lest we fall away. We'll end there and we'll have the time of communion as we finish our service this morning. Let me pray briefly. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you would remind us and concern us with that judgment day. 
I thank you, Father, that you are willing to be a, a God that rewards those who seek him. And I thank you, Lord, that you have been careful to explain to us throughout the New Testament and for, for that matter, Father, throughout the scriptures that you are careful in your eye. You watch and know all that happens and you remember. And though our sins have been set apart from us as far as the east is from the west, Father, nonetheless, you do concern yourself with how we serve you. Let us be motivated by that coming judgment, concerning ourselves as well with how we please you so that we would not let anything that has been made available to us pass by, that we'd reach that full assurance of the hope that's been set before us, Father. Thank you for the reminder. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.